Welcome to the Future of Life Institute podcast. I'm Gus Docker. I'm here with Nathan Lebens. Nathan is uh, doing research and development at Waymark into AI video creation. And he also co-hosts the Cognitive Revolution podcast, which I really recommend, by the way. Nathan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Gus. I'm excited for this. Okay, so why the name Cognitive Revolution? How do you think about that concept? What, what, is, what is happening in the world that, that will, would make you name your podcast Cognitive Revolution? Well, it seems like we're hitting a moment of, you know, with kind of apologies to, you know, Karl Marx. Uh, it seems like we're hitting a moment where we're about to enter a change in the quote unquote mode of production. Uh, that's kind of how I came to that notion. You know, the... The way we do things seems like it is about to fundamentally change at a minimum, you know, and we can speculate about uh, a lot more change that might be in store for us as well. But, you know, I was just kind of looking back into history and trying to think like, what are the kind of right reference points for a change of this magnitude? And, you know, people are all, everybody's kind of groping around trying to find the right analogy or the right comparison right now. And I kind of kept looking a little bit farther and farther back where I was like, is it, you know, the iPhone? No, I think it's bigger than the iPhone, actually. Is it like the Internet? Better, but I would still say, like, it seems like it might even be bigger than that. And kind of work my way back to, like, the Industrial Revolution. And that's kind of, you know, where I stopped. And I said, yeah, it feels like this is kind of the right comparison, because if you go back, you know, to the pre-Industrial Revolution, and then, you know, look at that change. Generally speaking, like we used to do everything with our muscles and then we sort of figured out that like we could get machines to do that stuff for us and it kind of changed everything and life, you know, bears, you know, some resemblance, but is also way beyond what anyone could have imagined before that transition got underway. And that's kind of what I think we're headed into now. You know, we, we currently use machines to do the stuff that we used to do with our muscles, but we still use our brains, you know, largely to do the stuff that we do with our brains. And, you know, computers have chipped away at that in some areas, but nothing like what I think we're about to start to see. So really more than anything, just trying to drive home uh, for people that this is, I think, bigger than anything we've lived through. And you kind of have to go pretty far back in history to find something comparable. And, and if this is indeed the right historical analogy, then we're in store for something massive. The Industrial Revolution is in many ways a singular moment in history in which we we see the, a mass escape from poverty. We see in, in very, uh, very steep rises in living standards in many countries and so on. Is, is that how you also... Uh, think about the revolution we're about to undergo? Do you, do you think we will see higher growth, better living standards, massive technological innovation? Yes, uh, I certainly hope so. And, but I don't think it's like a given, you know, there's kind of two big complications to that story. And I'm, I'm very bullish on AI technology in general, and just like excited about it, you know, in my daily work, like, I love working with it, I love what it can do for me. Um, so that's one of the reasons also I wanted to, to do you know, a podcast is kind of to communicate both sides of this, because I, I do have the enthusiasm and the optimism, you know, for a scenario like what you outlined there. And then at the same time, I'm also like, boy, it sure seems like we don't have a great handle on this technology yet. It seems qualitatively different in some ways from like the rise of industrial machines. And, you know, who knows what might happen with that. Um, and then I also think, too, there's potentially a lot of 
pain or at, at a minimum like disruption between here and there. I mean, you go back to the history of the, the Industrial Revolution. First of all, it took a lot longer, kind of a multi-generation time frame from like when they first started using you know, very rudimentary and kind of handcrafted pistons to like pump water out of wells so they could keep digging coal deeper, you know, beyond where it would flood. Um, doing that at the mine site, you know, from that moment to like a quality steam engine, you're talking like probably three generations of people refining the technology, tinkering, inventing, you know, finding ways to use it. And even then, you know, with all that time to adjust, you have these moments of like, you know, the people that used to weave <laughs> fabric, uh, or, you know, manually, like they had a really hard time. And I don't think their income, you know, by and large, ever recovered, even though, you know, future people ultimately lived better. So I, I do worry about that as well. Like this one seems like it's going to come at us in a much more compressed time frame. the ability for this technology to kind of go, you know, global, uh, the generality that it already has, you know, at the time of release is, you know, totally different from like that first rough piston, you know, at a mine site. So I think on the other side of this hill, there is potentially, you know, an incredible next level of human existence. There's also some, you know, off ramps where things could get, get really bad, I think. And even in the good scenario, I think we have a lot of turbulence in front of us um, because, you know, this kind of change is not easy to absorb, especially when it happens so quickly. So that we have one reference for the, the word revolution, which is something like the industrial revolution or the agricultural revolution, where we see higher growth, more technology and so on. And then we have another reference point, perhaps, which is, say, the revolutions of the 20th century with, with uh, instability and perhaps new forms of government developing. Do, do, you, do you think you were, you were talking about a little bit about this. But do, do you think we'll see similar patterns there also? kind of the, the negative side of, of the revolution? Yeah, I mean, I think we'll probably have to on some level. And, you know, again, those can be very different in terms of their qualitative experience as well. I don't think any revolutions go down, any political, you know, revolutions go down super smooth. But you look at the one in the United States, and that's like probably about a best case scenario where you know, it was a relatively you know, non-destructive war that got fought and, you know, people came out the other side, like largely with things intact. And you could look at, you know, alternatively, like the French Revolution that wasn't that much later, uh, where it was just, you know, a total kind of leveling of society and total chaos and just, you know, mass killing and, you know, and in total insanity. So there's still a pretty wide range in terms of how well it can go, obviously, when society gets restructured. And I have no idea really what to expect there. Obviously, I can hope for the best and you know fear the worst. But it does seem like we are going to have to reckon with this technology in ways that do ultimately feed back onto the political structure. You know, just for starters, like obviously people start to think quickly about things like universal basic income or you know some sort of updated social contract. And that seems appropriate to me. I, I do think, you know, I don't feel like I have the answers by any means. I'm not uh, prescribing, you know, how often the UBI check should arrive or exactly what amount it should be in or even what currency it should be in necessarily. But it does feel like there is going to be a need for an update to the social contract. That much seems hard to avoid, I would say. Okay, so what we've just done is take kind of the the big picture overview of the situation. Now I want us to get a big a bit, a bit back to earth and talk about the more near term. So 
you have done work as a red teamer for GPT-4. This was before it was uh, it was released. So after they they trained the model, they went through a period of I think about eight months in which they did red teaming and tried to to find flaws in the model. Maybe you can tell us a bit about the the process of of red teaming this very large model. Yeah, boy, it was a truly incredible experience. Um, you know, qualitatively. And I've been very interested to see more and more accounts now are starting to come out about this. I would definitely recommend the GPTs are GPTs paper, uh, which came out of Microsoft, I believe. The um, There's also one now a book that's coming out called The AI Revolution in Medicine, which uh, has a sort of firsthand account of early access to GPT-4 that very much like echoes my experience. So, you know, you know, caveat there, preface this by saying, don't, you know, don't just take my word for it, go, go read around of the experience of others as well. But for me, you know, qualitatively, it started off with, I was an open AI customer, and still am. And I think I had established myself as a pretty good source of feedback for them. We got in a little bit early, you know, in kind of GPT-3 timeframe when the, you know, the customers weren't just all uh, flocking to OpenAI quite yet. It was like kind of a cool technology, but seemed like more of a novelty to many people at the time. My business, Waymark, just happened to be in the perfect place to use it because what we do is help small businesses create video content. And we've worked really hard on like a smooth interface, you know, try to make that as an, an easy and intuitive thing as it can be. Uh, but then we also kind of ran into this thing that we couldn't solve which was a lot of times when we talk to our users and say like, can we make this easier for you? Is there anything we can do where you would use it more? How can we kind of, you know, help you, whatever? They would say, really, there's nothing you can do. <laughs> you know, they would say like, it, it is easy to use. That's not really a problem. And, you know, I don't really have any like major feature requests. Like you guys have kind of, you know, largely the bells and whistles. They would just kind of come down to, I don't necessarily make that many videos. And I, a lot of times it's because I don't really have that many ideas for videos. I don't really know what to say. So we had kind of come to this conclusion where we try to make this experience really easy. We had made it easy in some sense, but I came to believe that we had made it easy in the same way that a word processor is easy. You know, anybody can use Microsoft Word or Google Docs, but that doesn't make it easy to write. Yeah, you're still staring at the blank page in a sense. Exactly. That's what, that's what our users were really struggling with. So there wasn't really a conventional UI that could solve that problem. And I've watched the AI space for a long time and like always been kind of interested in it, but there was nothing, you know, until GPT-3 that could have addressed that problem in our business. And it just kind of happened that that problem, we'd kind of hit, you know, not the end, but like we're approaching the end of like what we could do with little UI refinements and hearing that feedback from customers at the same time that GPT-3 started to come online and it was like, I think this could be a great match, right? I think there's something here that could help our users have ideas of what to say or write a script. You know, maybe they have a kernel of an idea, but they how do they turn that into something that actually works? GPT-3 seemed like it could help. It took a lot of elbow grease. You know, we had to fine tune models and, you know, refine and work on our data set. And, you know, we, we grinded pretty hard just to get to a first version based on GPT-3. And in the course of that, I gave a lot of feedback to OpenAI. Um, probably, you know, some of it useful, some of it not. But they knew that if they gave me, you know, the uh, the early access to GPT-4 as part of the customer preview program, which is how I entered 
that I would at least like write something up and, and give them some notes. So that happened at the very end of August 2022. And it was kind of this you know, before and after moment in my life where I, you know, and again, I was more plugged into AI than most, right? I've been an active OpenAI customer and, you know, seeing kind of the trend from GPT-3 to Instruct uh, to Text DaVinci 2 was the state of the art that was publicly available at that time. So I was way more like acclimated to AI and AI progress than most. And yet we get this email, it's like, here's this new model. And they didn't give us a lot of guidance. They basically just said, it's more capable than previous models. We encourage you to try not just your current use cases, but new use cases as well. Well, I didn't have to, you know, they didn't have to tell me twice, right? I got in there and I was just kind of like, let's try some use cases. I've looked back at my Slack messages to the OpenAI team since then. And you can see me go on this journey of just having my head, you know, totally explode over the course of a couple hours where it's like, okay, it can, you know, this thing that I've just spent the last year curating data fine-tuning, finding the edge cases, patching the data, you know, finally to get to something kind of workable, it can do it out of the box. Let me just keep trying, you know, more and more stuff. And I, I, we used to have this problem where we want the AI to count words. That's like pretty important for us, maybe less important for almost everybody else. But a lot of times for us, we, we would want, you know, if we're going to write a little script or whatever, it has to be a certain length in order for the business to go use it, you know, in a particular context, there are limits, whatever. So, we would try to get that dialed in. It was a real pain. But I asked GPT-4, write me the first sentence of a bunch of children's stories, each with exactly seven words. And it gave me incredibly good first sentences of these things. And the kicker for me was exactly seven words. So I wrote in the Slack to OpenAI, it can count words. Oh my God. And I just kind of kept going. I stayed up you know, late into the night, tinkering, tinkering, tinkering. And, but, you know, it was one of these things where I'm just like, is this real? Am I dreaming? Um, but, you know, obviously it's real. And at that point, I kind of said, you know, I'm doing AI R&D for Waymark. There's no AI R&D that's more important than figuring out this technology and even just assessing it, you know, characterizing it, understanding, you know, just how powerful it is. So I kind of dropped everything else. And just started doing that full time. You know, what can I make it do? How powerful is it? Um, I started to get a little worried because I was like, you know, I'd obviously heard of things like AI risk and whatever, but it all seemed largely like a future concern. In that moment, it was like, boy, that just accelerated to potentially a present day concern. I, I did not feel at first like I had a handle on how powerful it was which was totally different from previous in the previous generation. It was like, I know how powerful it is and I got to really tweak it and mold it and force it to do what I want it to do. And now this one was like, I don't, I, I'm kind of struggling to find the limits of this thing. Did OpenAI send you instructions for what to do as part of the red teaming? Were you instructed to try your hardest to, to break the model or to jailbreak the model? I moved to the red team after kind of, you know, doing this full time for a couple of weeks. I said, do you guys have like a more safety oriented project going on as well? Like, I'd like to contribute to that if I can. And they said, yeah, we have a red team as well. You can, you know, come over to that part of the Slack and uh, participate there. And we did get as part of that some instructions, honestly, pretty minimal. Keep in mind, too, and the, the technical report, the open eye technical report lays all this out in you know much more detail as well. But at that time, going back to August, September, October 
of last year, that model that we had initially is what is now known in the technical report as GPT-4 early, as opposed to GPT-4 release, I think is what they call the version that we now have online. The early version, and I'm speculating, but, but I think I'm speculating here from a very informed position, it was, and there is some, some description of this in the technical report too, but that early version was seemingly trained on what I'm calling naive RLHF, which is to say they definitely had done at a minimum instruction tuning, and I believe they had done RLHF as well because the experience was qualitatively like the experience we have today. You ask it a question, it knows you know kind of what you're looking for and how to answer it. You give it instruction, it knows how to follow those instructions. That much was there. But what I believe had happened is they just kind of ran that process with a bunch of user prompts and a bunch of user you know, feedback scores and then trained a reward model and then run the RLHF process without any special consideration to controlling the behavior, the safety profile, all that sort of stuff. It was just another, another phrase I use is purely helpful. So whatever the user wants, that is the only consideration that the model seemed to have been trained on. And this is this is the basic process of doing this reinforcement learning from from human feedback that you that you're talking about. Simply, the user asks the AI to to accomplish something, and then the user rates how well the AI did. And so, there's a difference between the purely helpful and the safe. And perhaps that's where the 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 job of the red team comes in. Yeah. So it was interesting because there wasn't any need for jailbreaking. You know, all of the techniques that people use today, Dan, and, you know, these, these sort of, you know, ways to get around the safety mitigations, none of that was necessary at all. You could just go in and say, write me a denial of service script, and it would just do it. You could say, you know, we've seen some investigations like this that have come out. There's a good paper out of Carnegie Mellon about emergent autonomous scientific research capabilities. And there's really interesting discussion there around does that actually qualify as science or not quite? I would say not quite. But scientific tasks like synthesize methamphetamine, you could say, like, write me a remote control lab script. There's a business called uh, Emerald Cloud Lab that allows chemists and biologists to run protocols via code in their like remote controlled laboratory. So I just tried seeing if it could, you know, synthesize various things. Turned out it actually didn't know the syntax. It didn't have like the right code, but it did put together realistic looking code with the right steps. And again, no hesitation, no real like chiding, no, you know, as in, as a language model trained by OpenAI, I have no opinions on this kind of stuff. It was just whatever, you know, seemed to be the most helpful to the user. That's what the thing would do. And there was really no limit to that. So they have their moderation categories. And that was kind of the instruction that we got, like, we're looking for problematic stuff. And it was kind of like, guys, <laughs> problematic stuff is like extremely easy to generate. We could give you just, you know, reams of it because you want to say something racist, it will. You want to say something sexist, it will. Not the current version, of course, but this is the early version before all these safety mitigations have been applied. So I honestly didn't do a, a ton of that. There were probably 20 to 30 people in the red team, some more engaged with others. You know, there were a couple like me who, kind of dropped everything and just like did this nonstop. There were others that, you know, obviously had 
jobs and things that you know, they couldn't uh, put down quite so readily. So they were doing less. Um, but kind of observing the group as a whole, I was like, we've got no shortage now of like sexist, you know, comments and racist comments. And, you know, you can, you know, have, have it write a, there is this in the technical report, writing an email threatening violence, you know, against someone, you know, you could just go on and on. So I kind of pretty quickly looked at that and said, all right, I don't think they need that many examples of this, like whatever they're going to do here, you know, it's like pretty clear that, you know, they need to do it still. And so I tried to move on to more conceptual things where I was kind of like, you know, are there, are there things that are subtle, you know, that, that might not fall into these moderation categories, for example, or might, um, you know, might be very hard for OpenAI to detect even, you know, with their moderation endpoint and, and things like that. So, and what would be examples here? A little hesitant to share too many specific details in, in all honesty, because some of them still do work on the launched model. Um, and that's definitely one thing that I, when I zoom out from this whole process, I'm like, you know, what are the, what are the big lessons? You know, I have a lot of, of them probably, but one that comes to mind, you know, in virtue of that is like, they are working hard on this. Uh, I can say that with high confidence, you know, they took their time, they had the red team group, they didn't tell us about all the other stuff that they had going on at the same time. But you know, it's come to light now that there were teams at Microsoft doing systematic investigations and, you know, doctors taking GPT-4 on rounds. And like, we just didn't know about all that stuff. Um, but there was a lot going on. So they have worked really hard on this. And they have made a lot of progress. You cannot get these like violent turns nearly as easily, you know, it's it's hard now. You have to really work at it to kind of do these like extremely flagrant jailbreaks. But subtle things, you know, if you imagine yourself like, if you imagine yourself saying, all right, what if I were to offer some free GPT-4 to people to kind of entice them in to my app, but, you know, and I present something to them as if it's like going to be good for them and convenient for them and free for them, but I'm actually hiding some things in the output that are in fact going to be harmful to them. That, that was the, more of the sort of type of thing that I wanted to go explore because I felt like framed subtly or, you know, especially with fine tuning as well. If you think about the way that the task itself can be in, implicit in fine tuning, you know, that stuff is not necessarily going to be easy for them to detect. Interestingly, GPT-4 itself can often detect some of that stuff. So, you know, when you kind of start to create multi-agent systems, you know, built with GPT-4, I found that you could do things like feed that problematic output. And I apologize for being a little vague, but again, this is kind of still an open problem. So I, this is the right, this is the right way to do it. Yeah. It's the right way to do it. So what you can do though, you can, you can, you know, take this kind of subtle implicit uh, thing that does in fact generate something that would be harmful to the user and then turn that around and ask GPT-4, do you see anything problematic about this? Uh, and there it actually would, it was, it varied a little bit depending on just how subtle I made it and whatnot. Um, but there were instances where it was like, yeah, it actually can kind of police itself, not perfectly, but you know, there's at least something there that seems very promising. So yeah, I just kind of tried everything I could come up with to try my, I had two months that the program ran and my thought was basically run every experiment possible in this window and then kind of try to zoom out and synthesize it after the fact. So I just ran down a ton of little rabbit holes. Um, 
And, you know, again, at that point, there were no barriers. So it was it was a fascinating experience, to say the least. And was it this two months uh, journey that convinced you that that AI was going to be a, a big deal and perhaps a bigger deal than you than you had thought before? I was already pretty convinced, but this definitely, you know, excel, whatever, shortened my timelines to big things happening in the future. Uh, I honestly, pretty quickly, one of the other investigations I did was just trying to figure out, is this transformative technology? I had, you know, been a reader of Holden Karnofsky's cold takes and things like that. And, you know, I'm not, uh, I don't read every post on the less wrong or the alignment forum. Uh, but I, you know, I try to be not totally out of the loop. And there's this concept of transformative AI. I think it means different things to different people. But I started to use a definition that, again, kind of feeds back to the podcast title. Is this as big of a deal as like the industrial revolution? Is this like going to change as much? Is there as much raw power here as there is in like the internal combustion engine? And to assess that, I basically just tried to run a bunch of experiments where I asked GPT-4 to do different jobs for me, you know, be my doctor, be my lawyer, uh, be my fitness coach, be my babysitter. Um, that one's in simulation, uh, obviously. But I you know, said, like, you're going to play with a three-year-old. Um, and then I just played the role of a three-year-old. I had a three-year-old at the time. I One of the big kind of lessons I've learned from this process is just how important it really is to be hands-on and like interactive with the model, the models, because I saw so many things, even during the red teaming, where people were like a attempting these kind of benchmarking style assessments and sometimes going way wrong for various idiosyncratic reasons, where when you just get in there and have like direct dialogue with it, it's kind of unmistakable that it really does work in a lot of situations. So like I pretend to be my three-year-old, it plays with me as my three-year-old and it's like fun, you know, it's creative. We're having a fun time. You know, it, it kind of reacted nicely to the sort of sudden left turns or changes in story that the, uh, that, you know, a three-year-old will inevitably bring you. So you have these kind of, you know, oh, we're not doing this anymore. Now we're, we're not the bad pirates anymore. Now we're the good pirates. And, you know, you have to have kind of a yes and sort of mentality. And you have to understand that, like, that's the sort of mentality you should have. And it just, you know, pass all these tests with, with flying colors. Other end of the spectrum is I have a grandmother uh, who's turning 90 this year. And she has an iPhone. And she's actually, you know, quite savvy, certainly for her cohort. She's, you know, on the cutting edge. But we run into problems. You know, she calls me sometimes and needs technical support and can't figure out, you know, how to navigate apps and stuff like that. So again, simulated that. I'll be my grandmother. You be the technical support. It became very clear on some of these experiments that it was already pretty much working without even having been fine-tuned at all for the task. In the case of the UI on these apps, I'm holding my phone, I'm pretending to be my grandmother, and I'm interacting with GPT-4, which obviously can't see the phone. I, we did not have any multimodality, and we also did not have 32,000 uh, token context window. We had 8,000 and text only. So it can't see the phone. So there's a whole other way that it could solve this problem just by seeing the UI um, that they demonstrated you know, it, with the launch. But in the version that I had, it couldn't see the phone and it was guessing at the UI. And it became pretty clear that those guesses were like, 
largely right. You know, I mean, if you were to sit and blindfold yourself and guess what like the Gmail, you know, UI looks like on an iPhone, you'd probably get it mostly right. And so did GPT-4. But that was, I remember that being a moment where I was like, boy, it's making this up. It has not seen the Gmail UI and yet it can guess it. Just imagine what it's going to be able to do when it's either fine-tuned or like there's, you know, sort of a context provided that allows it to, you know, have like true command of, uh, you know, of, of kind of the, the ground truth. It became pretty clear to me that I ended up doing probably 20 different simulations where I was, you know, the customer, the patient, the client, you know, the kid, the senior who needed help, whatever. And GPT-4 is all these other roles that extended to like answering the phone at an auto mechanic, uh, being an associate at like a Home Depot, you know, and these are just real problems from my life that I would bring to it. I have an old car and I got a problem with it, you know, describe a little bit what's going on. Uh, honestly, I'd say you get better service from GPT-4 on that than a typical garage that you might call. You call the place. They don't really want to talk to you that much. You know, it's like, bring it in and we'll take a look at it. And that's pretty much what we're going to do. GPT-4 will talk to you as long as you want to talk to it, at least up to 8,000 tokens, uh, which turns that's about 45 minutes of like real-time conversation. That's not insignificant. Um, you can get your questions answered. Same thing with the, you know, the Home Depot associate. I've got these old light fixtures in my basement. I think they were literally installed like 30 years ago. They, they use these really old bulbs. Oh my God, like, what am I going to do? I got to change those out. The energy efficiency is terrible. But who knows about that stuff? I don't, but GPT-4 does. It gave me a specific light bulb designed as a, uh, like, you don't have to replace the fixture, but you still get, you know, 80% of the energy efficiency boost. Literal exact product. Open it up on, and this is, of course, again, no access to the internet, no access to anything. It's just memorized all this stuff. So the exact product, I'm able to open that up. Notably, it gave me a fake link. The link itself was a 404. But if I searched the name of the product, the product did exist. It was exactly what it was supposed to be. And I bought it. Now we have those lights in our uh, basement. That's pretty amazing. So uh, were you most impressed by the breadth of roles that this language model could play? Or were you most impressed by the depth of some of the solutions it came up with? Great question. I would say the breadth is more, you know, it's more superhuman, put it that way. Um, the conclusion that I came to, which I think has roughly been borne out by kind of all of the papers and whatnot that have been published. And they, one of them, I just, in reading this AI revolution in medicine last night, they put it so well, uh, better than I had figured out how to put it. They said, GPT-4 is simultaneously smarter than and dumber than any human you've ever met. And I think that's so apt. The way I was thinking about it was a little bit different, but cashes out basically to that. I was like, it certainly has incredibly superhuman breadth. I mean, it knows something about almost everything. But then I started to look really hard. I was the a question that kind of became an obsession for me for a little while there was, okay, it seems like it's like it's above average on everything. If you literally take just human average, it's above average on, I would have to think literally everything. You might be able to find some trick question or whatever that you know, or it would actually be below average, but you'd have to work for that. So it's above average and everything. Where is it kind of, you know, we, I did a little bit of um, MMLU spot checking. Uh, they didn't have a lot of compute capacity behind this. And they asked us not to like run automated benchmarks as part of the red teaming process. So I didn't, but what I did do was just study benchmarks and just spot check 
to try to get a sense to calibrate myself, you know, on how good is it. So based on the like MMLU spot checking, uh, which I even forget what exactly that is, but uh, the great Dan Hendricks, who I always uh, tout, Google Dan Hendricks and, and look up all the benchmarks that he and, and collaborators have created. I said to him after doing this, I was like, kudos to you for creating a language model that can stand up to 2022 uh, or for creating a benchmark that can stand up to 2022 language models because most of them were just, you know, bold right over and MMLU was one that it, it hadn't fully solved. So I kind of came to the conclusion that like, all right, by default, it seems to be at like mid to late undergraduate level at a lot of like science and math. Maybe it's into like early grad student level, certainly in like the humanities. It seems like it often is. Again, this is like combined with extreme breadth. And so anyway, the question that I became obsessed with is, does it ever exceed human expert? And I tried really hard to find examples where it could come up with something that seemed to be at or better than human expert level. And ultimately, I would say I didn't find it. So that kind of led me to, you know, to answer your question, I think the breadth is just insane. The depth is awesome. I mean, you know, we should contextualize this obviously in the you know, it was, I'm old enough to remember when we didn't have, you know, uh, college or grad student level AIs. So like, it is insane. Yeah, I have not seen, and not for lack of trying, anything that kind of seemed to, I think you could maybe say it touches human expert level in some things, especially where they're very qualitative. Um, you know, if you were to say like, can this thing write better sonnets about semiconductors than the best human at writing sonnets at semiconductors? I'd still probably say no. But one thing it could do is write 10,000 sonnets about superconductors and then let you pick what you like. And, you know, maybe it would win those contests. If we had like a, a contest, like it could win. But that's so subjective and, you know, uh, hard to really hard to evaluate in kind of areas where there's like a standard, you know, where there's some objectivity. I was not able to find any instances where it seemed to consistently match or ever really exceed human expert. And I think that has been largely borne out by other people's investigations as well. But perhaps it's, it's worth uh, iterating or saying again that just, you know, it, the fact that it's only at college level is insane, <laughs> is itself an astonishing fact. The fact that we have now become accustomed to AIs performing at perhaps high school, college level, which, you know, I, I think wasn't even in the cards five years ago. Perhaps one example of expert level performance is from the Sparks of AGI paper from Sebastian Bubek, where where they do some some examples where they try exactly to go for export, uh, expert level performance. And these are hand-plucked examples, but there is some a, a discussion of topology, uh, a specialized area of math that I don't fully understand. So perhaps I'm not the best to evaluate how, uh, how expert level this is. But it, it seems expert level to, to the authors of the paper. Um, I, I encourage people to, to go check that out. I think perhaps with hand-plucked uh, examples, in some areas, we can get to expert level performance with GPT-4 also. Yeah, I wouldn't rule it out. You know, it, it's one of these things where I think there's so much confusion in the discussion about like 
what AIs can do and what they can't do. And, you know, then there's people saying what they'll never be able to do, which I think at this point, you know, don't listen to those people because <laughs> they've been proven wrong over and over again. I'm the never do like uh, that. That is just, I don't get it anymore. But yeah, I think there's a couple of different ways of framing the current capability. Both are useful, but I tend toward one definitely more than the other. First one is like, what will it reliably do? What will it like always do? What will it never make mistakes on? And, you know, that is actually fairly small domain, you know, especially if you truly, how many, you know, how many nines do you want in your like reliability metric, right? You know, it's very hard to get that many nines in any system, even with, you know, incredible engineering. So, and we certainly, you know, how many nines do you have? You know, what's your SLA on, uh, on reliability or uptime? Like mine is certainly not, um, five nines. So I personally feel like that's a little bit of a misapplication of the, of an old paradigm to a new technology. Not to say that there's nothing to be learned from that. At a minimum, we can say like, these things do make mistakes. They are not fully reliable in almost any domain. That's important to know for sure. The way that I tend to prefer to think about it though, is what can it do? And especially, you know, what can it do with a little bit of effort <laughs> or maybe a moderate amount of effort um, or even, you know, a lot of effort if that's what it takes to get it to do something. So, yeah, I wouldn't be shocked um, to see that maybe in some areas it can match expert performance, at least like some portion of the time. And I think if it can do it really any portion of the time, if it can do it any detectable portion of the time, that's probably enough in as much as we didn't know what the pricing was going to be back in the red team era, but now we do. And you think, okay, a 45 minute interaction, an 8,000 token iterative buildup, you know, of that whole context window up to the max, depending on exactly how it plays out, maybe costs you like a dollar. A human expert, you know, certainly is going to start roughly speaking a hundred times that. So, you, if it can do it ever, if it can do it even 1% of the time, you know, and you have any way of distinguishing what's what, then all of a sudden, you know, you're starting to hit something like comparable parity, whatever, even against experts. In my experience, that has been pretty rare. And I have seen some things where it, I would say I haven't seen it to the, to my satisfaction. Um, I'm no topology expert either. So I wouldn't be shocked if somebody else could come up with an example. Right now, I would say at a minimum, I can be, I can confidently say, it is really hard and seemingly likely also very infrequent to touch that human expert level performance. Uh, but I can't rule it out. You know, oh, I'm, I'm just one person who's like tried hard. That's, uh, you know, that's pretty small in the grand scheme of these things have such vast surface area. You know, I don't know anything about topology. So I don't even touch that. I, I, I know a little bit about like calculus. <laughs> so I was able to explore that a little bit. Um, it's not an expert level at calculus, at least unaided. You know, now you got Wolfram plugin. I mean, that, all bets are off there, right? I don't think uh, in combination with Wolfram, you probably are at a system level uh, starting to see expert level at calculus. Um, but in isolation, you know, it was, it was still clear that it was not at an expert level in calculus. So I wasn't able to produce that in isolation, but you know, things are not stopping here. They've continued to improve the model since then. There's all sorts of areas that I did not have the wherewithal to test or evaluate. 
the tools paradigm is going to be huge. The longer context window is going to be huge. Fine tuning on domains. I mean, that's probably the biggest one, right? I mean, or, or it's the most obvious one. Tell it what the iPhone actually looks like. Tell it what the, you know, fine tune it on some medical information. Uh, equipping it with memory is going to be huge. Multimodality is going to be huge. What we saw with images is a game changer unto itself. I mean, we've seen all this exploration with AI agents over the last month. And so much of what the agents can't do right now would probably be pretty much solved if they had the multimodality online. Because it gets stuck on these websites and it can't get past this and it can't get past that. But when they showed in the demo that it can just totally understand a UI. So, you know, you're going to have this like extra level, extra means of kind of navigating the world. And then there's other multimodalities to be, you know, added not in the in the not too distant future as well, right? These things are all kind of a real like eye-opening moment for me was the Flamingo paper out of DeepMind last year, which was the the first like really impressive multimodal demo that I saw where folks may remember that there was like a bowl of soup, but the soup was made of yarn. So it was like this very sort of weird thing. And the AI was able to grok it. And you look at the architecture of Flamingo and they had used a frozen language model and then kind of stitched into it, you know, the, the visual information and then kind of run, you know, a little extra training or whatever. And it was like, they didn't even build this from the ground up. You know, they're, they're like, sod, I, the vision I had, it was like a tinkerer in the garage, like soldering wires together. And it's like, we're at the stage of architecting these networks where tinkerers can just kind of solder things together. And lo and behold, like it works. I'm sure they had some failures in that project as well. And I, I've talked to people, they, they did say like, it wasn't quite as easy as they made it look, but it still looked to me like, boy, if that works and it's not super principled, like a lot of things are going to work. So what I'm starting to hear a little bit about in like medicine, for example, is, you know, native scan reading. There's no reason that has to be a 2D image. If a scan exists as a 3D representation and human practitioners have to look at it as a 2D slice because that's all we can render or whatever, yeah, it's not going to have that constraint. It's going to be able to natively combine all these different modalities with language. And, you know, that definitely is going to start to bring some expert level performance, you know, reading scans, contextualizing a scan in the context of the patient's medical history. So I do expect, you know, I, I don't want to, I, I, I'm very cautious about like, I'm giving a snapshot, you know, of where we kind of were six months ago and, and, you know, largely still, I think where we are today, but this is not where we're stopping. So uh, I do think the expert, you know, barrier will fall. So we're, we're talking about how we can extend the, the current models. We're talking about how, how models can go from being tools to being more like agents. We're talking about plugins uh, where, where language models will have access to, to, to math abilities and to perhaps uh, browsing the internet and so on. Where do you think the, the, the dangers here arise in the near term? You, you've, you've spent a lot of time interacting with, with these models. So what, what, do you think, what do you think are the, are the most um, problematic aspects of, of, of these models in the near term? I'm sympathetic to all the concerns, honestly. I, I tend to, you know, I don't know how how inside baseball uh, everybody listening to this is, but obviously, you know, you are aware that like 
there's the sort of near-term AI ethics and the AI safety camps and the X-Risk camp and all these factions seem to not get along very well, which is frustrating to me because I honestly think they're all talking about something that is worthy of concern. I think those that focus on, you know, we have all these problems in society and all these biases and people aren't treated fairly. And, you know, we're now running some risk of like systematizing that. I think it's a very real concern. So I'm very sympathetic to that. And I think OpenAI has done a, a very good job. And I think, you know, other companies are also doing a quite good job of that. You know, that you can see the difference. I just got into a little debate on this on Twitter the other day where people are posting 3.5 examples that, you know, still make these like sexist assumptions or whatever, you know, where it's like if the sentence has she, then it, you know, interprets it one way. And if it's he, then it interprets another way. Well, GPT-4 mostly clears that stuff up. It doesn't, it's been coached out of the most flagrant biases. There are certainly some left, you know, there's, there's no doubt about that. Uh, but I think they have made really good progress. And, you know, I think it's, I think it's to the folks credit who've raised the alarm on that kind of stuff that, you know, it has, people are working on it and they've, they've been able to show good results. So I'm very sympathetic to that. I'm in a pretty privileged position, but it's easy to imagine being in a, you know, not that much less privileged position and having some of these systems like operate on you with bias in a way that just sounds awful. So I think people are right to be concerned about that. How do you think about perhaps the dangers of hacking or automated blackmail or automated scams? Uh, is is that a, a potentially a concern in, in the near term? Yeah, I'm going to say yes, I think, to everything. Um, <laughs> they can definitely do dialogue and they can definitely do deceptive dialogue. You know, another thing I, I looked for pretty hard was is there any indication that this thing is trying to deceive me? And I didn't find anything where I was like, yeah, that's a slam dunk. I think the closest, I think in a sense, like hallucinations can kind of be that. In the early version, we would see a lot of citations with fake links. And you're kind of like, well, how is that happening? Well, maybe it gave some right links and it got some positive rewards. Maybe it started to slip in some fake links and people didn't notice, you know, and next thing you know, it kind of learns that people like links. And then you overgeneralize that and you're getting fake links. But I didn't feel like that was a, you know, fully like theory of mind, you know, deceiving of the user uh, type of example. But if you ask it to deceive the user, then it will, then it, at that early stage, it would just totally do that. Um, again, that's something that OpenAI has made a lot of progress on. But in a world where, you know, stability has just released their, you know, open model and an accompanying RLHF, you know, library to go with it. I don't see any reason. And in fact, I would be shocked if there's not already some bad actor out there beginning the process of RLHFing scam attacks, you know, that could be mediated by any number of platforms. Um, I experimented with Twitter DMs. So again, I made myself the target. And I said, your job is to extract sensitive information from this guy. Here's his Twitter profile. That's all you get to know about him. It worked pretty well. You know, it, it, it human level. Yeah, roughly. I would say, I mean, honestly, I th it's, it's interesting when you go to, I don't, I'm not like a connoisseur of online scams, but to some degree, it seems like the scams are somewhat stupid by design and they're kind of designed to select for people that like are extremely gullible. 
I didn't really test that as much. I was more trying to test, like, could this fool me? And, you know, I saw mixed results. Like, sometimes it was a little too obvious. Sometimes it was a little too whatever. Um, other times it was, like, pretty good. One of the things that I did see that was most interesting about it was when I gave it some instructions saying, basically, like, you know, if we get caught, we're going to be in trouble. Then I noticed that it would actually kind of respect that and kind of back off. So I tried to play it the way I would play it as me and let the thing try to scam me. And, you know, it'd kind of be like, of course, it would flatter you first. Uh, oh, I love what you're doing with Waymark. The video creation is so cool. And then I would just respond, oh, thank you. That's very kind. And then it would come back with something else. You know, and it's trying to build up the trust and rapport so it can ex extract the sensitive information from me. Sometimes it would be too flagrant. You know, it would jump to like, what's your mother's maiden name? <laughs> and I'd be like, <laughs> why? Are, that's weird. You know, why are you asking? Um, but here's the, the really interesting thing. In those moments, it would often then be like, well, I'm just curious about this because, uh, you know, I, I'm always interested in whatever, where people are from and their stories. And then I would still like not answer in response. And a lot of times it would just go away. You know, it was kind of like it had this sort of probing and like tactical retreat behavior, which I found to be impressive. You know, the best scammer in the world, I think, is definitely still better. You know, this is not like a world class con man, but it did show some real sophistication on that front. And so, yeah, I mean, with us, with these models now out there that are small, that you can just RLHF on your own. I mean, yeah, I think the the safe word for your family uh, is probably a good idea at this point. And we can talk about the dangers of an infinitely patient model working to scam people. So perhaps it's or it is nice to have an infinitely patient car mechanic or doctor or therapist or something. But it's it's on the other hand, it's it's potentially very dangerous to have an infinitely uh, patient scammer that could go uh, message you for weeks and and strategically retreat when when you suspect something perhaps. Uh, this is often is how humans build up relationships over over a longer period of time and so on. Of course you've already said that the, that this is potentially a problem, but this is just something I I see as a as a limit with human performed scams. They can't spend infinite amount of time on each scam. It's it it would cost too much, but with these models the cost might be driven so much uh, down so much that it's it's feasible. Yeah, totally. And us, uh, you know, 2.7 billion I think parameter is the small model that stability just released. Now this one may that may not be quite as, you know, up to this challenge or whatever. Maybe you need the 7 billion, maybe you need, you know, the 15 or the 30 even, but it seems overwhelmingly likely that we're going to see laptop operable models that can do this kind of thing well. Honestly, I probably, I would guess that that is like currently in development, if not already exists. And if it doesn't already exist, I can't imagine, you know, we get out of the, the summer, you know, before these things start to make news you know th this person got scammed we dug into it it turned out to be a language model like that story is coming just to be concrete i'll put a prediction 90 days you know before that starts to become like something that's in the public consciousness perhaps we should uh, we should end by talking about agents and so, so how how do language models become agents what is it that people are doing when they try to create an agent from from a language model and what do you see as, as the extra uh, dangerous features of agents uh, as opposed to, to, the, to the tools we have now? 
So this is very much early exploration. I did a little bit of exploration of this on my own as well. You know, this was, again, inspired by like less wrong reading from years ago, Eliezer, you know, recursive self-improvement. I saw this thing. I was just like so blown away by it. And I was like, could it recursively self-improve? Well, I don't really see a clear path to that. But then I thought, well, maybe it could recursively self-delegate. And maybe, you know, if it's context window is the fundamental limit, then if it can effectively align multiple instances of itself in some sort of hierarchy or system toward an ultimate goal, then it could at least overcome that limit to some degree. How would that work? So I found there that basically, you know, the, the, the results are so surprising because on the one hand, it had no problem picking up the paradigm. I just had to write it out, you know, in just a couple of paragraphs. Um, so people have been looking for, you know, talking, speculating about like situational awareness for a long time. Uh, it turns out a lot of these categories, I think, are a lot fuzzier than than they seemed a priori. Situational awareness, I was like, I never really saw situational awareness uh, spontaneously. But what I started calling prompted situational awareness, it seemed to have quite strongly. So I would say you are, you know, GPT-4. I didn't quite use that language. You are an advanced AI. You can do all these things. You can generate code. You can do this. You can delegate to another instance of yourself. And here's how. So we just kind of set up, and this has become pretty commonplace, but, you know, in my primitive, you know, sole tinkerer version, just a Python runtime where I would give one high level direction to a function. And within that would be the prompt where it had the instruction of how to delegate to itself it would then generate code and we would then run that code, you know, and see what happened. And it was like confusing because it got the, like the hardest concept, what I would have expected, right. Would be like, can you call the weather API? I would expect like way more likely it could do that than that. It could like self delegate effectively. But I actually almost kind of found the reverse where it understood the self delegation Basically, immediately, I didn't have to work that hard. I just gave it, here's how you would do that. And it, it understood it. Breaking the goals down into sub goals and like actually self-delegating in a, you know, in a systematic, seemingly appropriate way, you, know, you saw hits and misses there. Like it was never totally insane. Like it always, there was always a logic to what it was doing, but sometimes you'd be like, well, that doesn't really, like you think you've sort of broken that problem down, but basically, you know, this, the thing you delegated is kind of the same thing that you had coming in. So you haven't really made any progress. So I'd see some failures like that. But then honestly, the most common failure was just at the level of execution. And it would make these really dumb mistakes, which seem to be born of like just patterns in the training data. So for example, you know, again, by the way, something that multimodality is easily going to fix. I want to get some information. So this at the time, uh, the Queen Elizabeth had just passed away. So I was like, there's a really good, really strong prior in the training set on who is the reigning monarch of the UK. But now we know that that's changed. Can I give this thing an instruction to go out on the internet and answer this question and get the right answer? It would, you know, break that problem down reasonably well. I started to augment it a little bit with tools because it was like, I'll give it a Google search. Why not? You know, and not too much. I didn't get nearly as far as like the Langchain community has gotten today. But, you know, did some of that stuff. 
so it would do the Google search, it would go to the web pages, you know, it knew how to like spin up a little, you know, headless browser and go grab HTML. And then it would fail on just like the honestly kind of the dumbest stuff. Like it would look for the H1 tag off of a web page and maybe even specifically look at like a, a hard coded string match in that H1 tag. Now, some web pages don't have an H1 tag or, you know, it had an H1 tag and it may have said, you know, Queen Elizabeth's, you know, glorious reign, you know, that could have been the headline, but it was looking specifically for dies and dies wasn't there. So it was one of these things where it was like, if, it, if I had helped it at all, if I had kind of corrected it to say, hey, don't do that hard string match, like just qualitatively like read the thing and see if it has the information that you want, then it could have worked. But it would very often, and sometimes it even did work. I, I, I did have some instances where it would successfully complete a little task like that. But more often, it would get kind of bogged down in those little weeds type details. So you think as things are right now, you wouldn't be able to to create an agent and tell it to go out on the internet and, and find vulnerabilities in websites and perhaps try to extract user data. It would it would perhaps be able to to create a, a plan for doing something like this, but it would fail on specific concrete tasks in that plan. Yeah, I think that's a good summary. I think that's basically still where we are right now. And from everything I see from like the developer community, and we've just had two CEOs of agent companies on the podcast, um, both really interesting, super smart uh, individuals. One is uh, the CEO of Lindy.ai, and the other one is Fixie.ai, and they're taking somewhat different approaches. But you know, they're they see the the power of this. From what I've heard from them, that's still basically where we are. The general intelligence is like extremely inspiring, but you have to tack a lot of like micro successes into a sequence to get to the end goal. And there's just enough of a chance, you know, that each one fails that it kind of at some point fails. And it also wasn't great. This is, I think still somewhat of weakness. I do think it's improved, but still somewhat of weakness. It's not that great at like figuring out where it went wrong. I did see some instances and I, I created a little auto debug loop in my little self delegation scheme as well. By the way, GPT-4 wrote that class. The way I wrote, I'm not that great of a programmer. So I went to GPT-4 and I said, I want to write a class that uses language models to generate code and then executes the code and then auto debugs the code and then validates the code, write that whole thing for me. It wrote the whole thing. So then I just had to tinker with it, mostly at the prompt level, like the, the scaffolding it was able to set up largely for itself. Fascinating in and of, it, in and of itself. But anyway, I think we're basically six months away. You know, I mean, that's a somewhat rough timeline. That seems to be what the people that are building the agents think. And from what I can tell, the core of the problem, which is around the reliability of a lot of these kind of common tasks, it's, it seems almost overdetermined that it's going to be solved. There's the reinforcement learning paradigm where, you know, what's easier to scale reinforcement data on versus like code either worked or it didn't work. I don't want to oversimplify that. There's obviously some nuance in that, but you know, you get an error message, it didn't work. So, you know, <laughs> there is like a pretty natural way to scale reinforcement learning in that domain. The multimodality, you know, also is going to be huge. It seems like inevitable almost at this point that pretty capable agents will be starting to come online, I would say by the end of this year. 
that's both uh, exciting and and terrifying. Uh, Nathan, thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, loved it. Thank you very much.